Are you offering your clients the experience they really want? Or are you offering them what you think they want? Join hosts Laura Gregg and David Partain from FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds as they talk with a variety of industry experts and advisors just like you about their latest industry research to help you develop the flexible mindset you need to rise above the crowd. Hello and welcome to the Flexible Advisor Podcast. I'm Laura Gregg and I am joined with my co-host David Partain. David, I am so excited about this episode as we are going to be welcoming back an old friend and colleague of ours here at Northern Trust. Hello, Laura. Yes, Connie Lindsay is certainly a wonderful colleague, and we always enjoy speaking with her on the Flexible Advisor podcast. And as our regular listeners know, on the Flexible Advisor, we seek to invite guests that will provide unique insights and actionable ideas for advisors that want to fine-tune or grow their businesses while deepening client relationships. I'm thrilled to welcome Connie back onto the show. She is Head of Corporate Social Responsibility and Global Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Northern Trust. She first joined us last June as we were all trying to make sense of the George Floyd killing and the spotlight that shone on topics of racial and social equity. The events of last year, I believe, made us all hyper aware that as an advisory industry, we cannot be comfortable with the status quo of our predominantly white and male makeup, that we need to do something to move the needle. And so today we'll speak with Connie about why it's critical to think of diversity as a strategic imperative and what that means for advisory firms, for their staff, and importantly, for their clients. Connie, welcome back to the Flexible Advisor. Thank you, Laura. Good to be here with you and David. Connie, we are so lucky today to have you on the podcast. An article just hit my inbox today, and I saw that you were just named by Crane Chicago Business as one of a small group of notable executives in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Congratulations on the recognition. Thank you so much, David. I am so happy that we have you here today to talk about this important topic. So we are certainly excited to glean more of your insights. But before we dig in, please give us, for those who are not familiar uh, with you, a little bit of background about your role at Northern Trust, how you came to be in that role, and what your responsibilities are for the organization. Sure. As head of corporate social responsibility and global diversity, equity, and inclusion at Northern Trust, I'm responsible for oversight and development of our strategy, as well as our programs and initiatives related to corporate responsibility, which means environmental, social, and governance practices, our response to environmental matters, as well as diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that really means, David, the way that we think about our people, our engagements with the community. And I think of CSR as the connection, the interconnection of society and business. How I came to be in this role is a long and winding road, and so I'll give you the short version of that. I've been with our firm, Northern Trust, for several decades and have worked in three of our four business units, managed P&Ls, profit and loss statements, have led sales teams. So with a real full, rich background, grounded in finance, certainly, 
but have a perspective both internally and externally of the importance of how we support and engage with our employees whom we call partners, as well as the communities in which we live and work. And as a global role, I have the privilege of being able to understand DEI from a global perspective. And as I work and report directly to our chief executive officer, Michael O'Grady, it's really bringing that conversation to key executives around the firm, developing strategies that allow us then to measure the impact and then the evidence of that in the way that we engage with our clients and communities. How lucky we are to have someone of your caliber who really understands the business. And so the events of 2020 shone a spotlight on a lot of long-standing inequities, including racial, social, and economic. And as an industry, we've been talking about the need for diversity for many years, especially on this podcast. And in 2020, however, it felt like the conversation shifted with more of a discussion around the equity and inclusion part of the equation. Now, our recent survey confirms that more advisors in 2021 believed that DE&I should be a strategic initiative. And we also found that many report that their firms are taking some level of action. What do we need to do to sustain the momentum in both conversation and, more importantly, action to create an industry that better reflects our changing demographics? I think that's such an important question, and it has been on a continuum. I certainly agree that since May 25th, 2020, when George Floyd was murdered, there has been increased focus. And I've said before in forums like this one that I think the pandemic also added to just the bright light that was shown on the inequities that happen in our society and have happened in our society. And for Northern Trust, We've been doing this work for over 30 years for the wealth business overall as wealth advisors. What do we need to do and think about that? And I like to start as I do with so many things when we're having these conversations, whether it's with executives or others, is to think about the notion of race and ethnicity because they often are confused despite their subtle differences. Mm. Race includes those phenotypic characteristics such as skin color and ethnicity also encompasses cultural factors such as nationality, tribal affiliation, religion, language, and traditions of a particular group. So I think what's important is for us to start with nomenclature. What do we mean by diversity, equity, and inclusion? Mm. I'm gonna summarize this by saying what happened during the pandemic, all of us were inside. And I, I say that we went inside to go inside. While we were inside our physical buildings, as it were, we also went inside from a metaphysical or intellectual perspective. We witnessed a murder on television, but it just brought to the fore things that were always underlying in terms of inequities in society. So what we did was we were able then to have conversations that might have been had in smaller groups or forums, but it really shone the bright light on that. And so it allowed another opening, David, to have conversations. And I say doing the work of DEI, I've become comfortable with being uncomfortable. So we have those uncomfortable kinds of conversations. And we're then able to really dig more deeply into the implications and talk about strategies for resolving some of these issues. So, Connie, as, as you're aware, we, we conducted our first consumer and advisor research on the topic of DEI in late 2019. 
And then we went out again earlier this year. And we did that because we, we felt it was so important to understand whether the events of 2020, as you've just spoken about, move the needle on how advisors think about staff diversity and whether diversity matters to consumers and clients. And in doing this work, I wanna be clear that we looked at diversity of, of multiple types, racial, of course, but also of diversity, gender, sexual orientation, and age. And what we learned is that many advisors have evolved in how they are thinking about diversity from 2019 to 2021. Most place a higher importance on it and believe that it should be a strategic initiative within their firms. In fact, 52% of advisors said that diversity and creating a diverse staff should be a strategic initiative in 2021 versus 45% in 2019. However, there is an important disconnect. We learned in 2021 that despite advisors believing that hiring and retaining diverse talent should be a priority in their firms, large and small, we found that firms were actually prioritizing it lower on the scale of strategic initiatives versus 2019. And in 2019, building diverse staffs and retaining them fell a number eight out of nine strategic initiatives. I was certain that in 2021, we would see that move up to the, at least number six or five on, on the list of strategic initiatives. And actually, it fell. It fell to number nine out of nine. And, you know, that's not to say that firms are not taking action on diversity because 56 of advisors say that their firms have taken some action toward div building diversity in their firms. It's just that they are not prioritizing it among other things such as technology, creating a value proposition outside of investment management, marketing, or other traditional business initiatives. So Connie, with, with that background on some of our findings, I'm wondering, you know, do you think that people and firms, while they believe diversity is the right thing to do from a moral and social perspective, that they just don't see it as an important business initiative? Thanks for that question, Laura. And while I wish that I could say I was surprised by the finding, I am not. Do I remain disappointed at times when I see this consistently? Yes. But if I were not a person who believed that we are making progress, despite what we see in this, it would be even more difficult to do the work. And you're spot on when you say many organizations have talked about the work that they've done. And I looked at a piece that McKinsey put out, uh, and they say, according to uh, their research, one third of Fortune 1000 companies made a public statement on racial equity between May 25th, 2020 and the end of October 2020. And of those companies, 93% followed up with an internal or external commitment. Moreover, 57% publicly announced the amount they were committing to racial equity initiatives, pledging a total of $66 billion. And since that time, since uh, October 2020, it's increased to $134 billion. And I say that to say they certainly have put out a lot of initiatives and ideas and thoughts on ways that they can approach racial equity. Those tend to be more external versus really looking internally. And so having a business and strategic imperative around that requires two approaches, a qualitative 
and a quantitative approach, both in understanding the metrics, not just the financial performance of a business, but also what it looks like in terms of talent. I'm going to quickly pivot to diversity, equity, and inclusion. The word diversity is used often. We say we have diverse teams. We're looking at diversity in our organizations. But I want to distinguish those three words, diversity, equity, and inclusion in this way. Diversity is all of the ways in which we differ. I'm a woman. I'm a woman of color. I wear glasses. You know, I'm a certain height and weight. All of those things. That's diversity. David is a male. He comes from a certain part of the country or lives there. That's diversity. The equity piece says fair treatment, the distinction between uh, equity and equality. Equality assumes that we all start from the same place and need the same things, whereas equity says it's fair treatment, access, opportunity, and advancement for all people, such that our identity cannot predict the outcome. I think that's so important. Equity says our identity cannot predict the outcome, meaning that I'm not judged by some externality based on my physical presence, or even a perception about the place in which I grew up. And now we get to the inclusive part of it, Laura. And inclusivity means a variety of people having power, a voice, and decision-making authority. So when many companies talk about diversity, that equity and inclusion piece is not engaged in that. It's examining the data quantitatively and qualitatively. At Northern Trust, we did work over three years ago looking at our inclusion strategies and diversity and equity from a quantitative and qualitative perspective. And I can talk a little later about some of those outcomes and what we found, but that equity piece is critical to ensuring that companies look at that. Why do the numbers go down? I think it's the fierce urgency of now. May 25th, 2020, that was an event. And everybody looked at it as, oh my goodness, I need to respond. But has it really become a part of the structures and systems of the organizations in which where we work? And how do we create those strategies that really have the kind of depth and measurable outcomes? It DEI is a business imperative. I'll talk a little later about some of the facts around why that is. And so why did companies pull away? Fierce urgency of now, not really thinking, coming back from or trying to come back from the pandemic and its implications, but it doesn't go away. And we must continue to have a focus on what it means to have an inclusive culture, how our clients and customers and others have those expectations of us. Yeah, it just feels to me like so often it's viewed as a nice to have, or we should do it because it sounds like the right thing to do. But in our research, and I know McKinsey has gone far deeper than we have, but in our research, we found that advisors from firms that are more diverse and that are taking action toward DE&I are better, better able to attract professional help. And And I'm not just talking about diverse hires, about all professional hires. And they're also better able to retain those diverse hires for five or more years. And, you know, as I think about that and the cost that it takes to replace an employee, that is a critical benefit as you save the cost of recruiting, of training, of lost productivity, which can run into the tens of thousands of dollars, depending on the spot in the firm. So very true. The The U.S. Census Bureau, and we talk about how and who is in the workforce, predicts that the 2020 census will classify over half of uh, all children in the country as part of a minority race or ethnic group. Gen Z, the newest generation in the workforce, is predicted to constitute 36% of the workforce in this year. And when we think about talent development, the competitive nature 
of access to to talent, how our firms need to understand what is going to be uh, expected of them as, as people move into the workforce. I think the data is important. I'd also say, Laura, that for those of us in the financial services industry, we then tend to think quantitatively most of the time. And so we look for data and facts and figures, and that is all there and crucially important to good decision-making and the frameworks by which we make decisions. But a significant part of this diversity, equity, and inclusion work has to do with you don't have all quantitative uh, data. And people are not uh, to be considered, in my uh, opinion, as numbers. We're, we're worth more than the value of what we can produce. And so for those leaders who think about how do I apply this as a strategic imperative into my business, it really requires us, us to think of it in dual paths, that while our work requires us to have those key quantitative skills, it is important for us to think about the people um, whom we serve or who work for us, the clients that we want to attract to the business and develop those skills. And we'll talk later about what I would recommend and, and, and recommend to leaders who are saying, how do I embark on this journey? Or if I'm in the midst of it, what do I need to think about in order to be more successful? But it isn't easy. If it were, we would have resolved this years ago. There's so much to unpack. Why are people uncomfortable having the conversations? There's so much uh, there with that. And how do we help equip leaders in becoming um, adept at educating themselves on issues of diversity and inclusion in order that they might understand how to expand their own networks for talent and what that really means in, for, about the expectations of their clients? At Northern Trust, especially thanks to the work of you and your team and the commitment from leadership across the organization, we are regularly trained on what is meant by the term DEI, and also what steps we can take to build within our organization this DEI culture. For people in organizations that don't have such ongoing education, and you just mentioned it, about leadership, I think it may be easy to get confused and think that having a team with different genders and skin colors enables them to check that DEI box. So if you don't mind, share with us what you, they should be thinking about as they seek to actually build diversity within their organization. Thank you, David. That's such an important point. As I said earlier, when people talk about diversity, we tend to look at those external attributes of a person, although there are certainly many aspects of diversity that are not self-evident just by uh, viewing a person or uh, hearing what their name is or something of that magnitude. And it begins with two things. I think first is intellectual curiosity. Having enough of a curiosity to want to understand not just another's perspectives, but another, the backgrounds of other people. And then this notion of empathy. How are we able to understand and listen? I talk about it when I do small group sessions at our firm is holding space for other people. It's listening. You know, I ask my mentees oftentimes, are you listening or waiting to speak? Active listening is a gift that we can give to the person who is speaking, and it requires us to withhold judgment, to listen, to allow the person to tell a story with which we might have little or no familiarity based on the places from which we come or our own lived experiences. But it is so important to have empathy. It is not to do what I say oftentimes is to stay away from FACs, fixing, advising, correcting, or saving. That is not the role of the DEI professional or anyone who's seeking to understand and empathize. No fixing, advising, correcting, or saving. But it requires a level of intellectual inquiry. 
what do I want to understand about the culture or the person? How do I train and develop myself to ask questions, not interrogatory questions, David, but those kinds of questions that help me understand the perspective of another person? It is reading. It is understanding history from all sides of history or herstory, as I like to refer to it in some cases, uh, based on what we do. And it is just this kind of intentionality that will allow us to move forward and become more comfortable with having people around us and in our circles who are different from us, whatever that difference might be. What I have found in my work is that the more time we spend with folks who are not like us and taking the time and investing and having the, the empathy or just the curiosity to learn more, I've grown. One of my favorite questions in situations is help me understand the views of another. And I say to the people that I talk to, coach, mentor, and work with, even when I'm in a conversation where I become uncomfortable or there is some emotion that rises up, I say respond in wonder, W-O-N-D-E-R, wondering what might have gotten that person to that point of view or to that point in their life. When we respond in wonder, it helps mitigate anger and discomfort. It doesn't work all the time. It doesn't mean you shouldn't have a position on issues you must have. But if I am learning or opening myself to the opportunity to grow as a professional and as a person, that's critical. And leaders, it is imperative that you think about it in that way. We don't have all the answers, nor should we. But it is important for us to have that that spirit of inquiry. So I I love that. And I I would love to tack on a little bit. One, with something that Northern Trust is doing right now. And and two, something I always suggest when I'm talking to advisors. And the, the thing that, so, you know, clearly a lot of the people that we're talking to right now are in small advisory firms. Northern Trust is a very large organization. But one of the things I found so helpful that has come out, I don't know, in the past six months, maybe, it's a virtual coffee chat. And what it does is uh, pair, you know, I sign up and I'm paired with somebody in the organization. And I've done this three times. I've been paired with three different people who are in different business units, look very different from me, have different backgrounds. And it has been incredibly refreshing and insightful to get to know these people virtually that I never probably would have come into contact with otherwise. So, Connie, I guess at some level you were involved in that. So thank you. It's been very additive. Well, as you know, Laura, we've and, got a great team at Northern. None of this is, is a one-woman show. We've got a, a great DEI team. We have incredible support. And you're right. The way that we think about creating this culture of inclusion, as we refer to it, is how many ways can we interact with one another? We also have a Global Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Knowledge Center, which has books that we recommend for reading, TED Talks, all manners of ways that our partners can access information that we've curated so that people can begin to educate themselves. We conducted, the team and I, and our human resources partners conduct small group sessions where we talk about these issues, but creating safe space, you know, psychological safety is critical to being able to have these kinds of conversations where people can open up and talk about their own lived experiences, the things they may even be experiencing in their daily work life. What I found most moving at times, just so very deep in terms of how people have adapted themselves and who they are to be able to exist and thrive within organizations. And when we can't bring who we are in our totality to work, the organizations miss something. 
So you're right, Laura, getting to know each other. But the other part of it is it isn't just all emotion and thoughts. That's important because we are human beings, lest we become human doings. And then I think we lose a part of the magic of who we are. But we also have some very quantitative work that we've done at Northern. As you know, two to three years ago, we started to refresh our diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy. One of the outcomes we, we really looked at, we had some hypotheses around representation of underrepresented groups. And, and one of our hypotheses was that the number of moves that people in our firm had was correlated to the jobs and roles that they were having in the organization, and in some cases, to their upward mobility. So we tested that hypothesis by looking at over 4,000 moves over four years of individuals. And then we asked ourselves if the hypothesis was borne out based on the quantitative review that we had done, what levers could we pull to shift that? And what we found was that, true enough, of those 4,000 moves, most of those moves went to men and most of those men happened to be white males. And we said to ourselves, how can we increase the representation in those roles? They were manager initiated moves, meaning that people were tapped on the shoulder. It's not an odd thing or a bad thing. I've had leaders come to me and say, hey, Connie, we're interested in you moving into this role for development. What we needed to do was to ensure that the process was equitable. So what did that mean, Laura and David? That meant the way that we post roles now, including diverse slates. So for our listeners to think about what are some of the tactical things that you can do to help increase that. It's diverse slates, diverse interview panels. The three outcomes from that diversity, equity, equity and inclusion strategic work were accountability, enhanced development and training programs, and the third was culture. And I'll close this this particular response by saying it was said, and I'm going to paraphrase this, that culture eats strategy for lunch. But whatever meal you choose, it certainly will do that. And so culture is a key part of how we are approaching the inclusive changes we need in our firm. And those coffee chats that you were talking about are one aspect of it. Looking at our succession planning is another aspect of it. And then helping us to have ways that we talk about this work using nomenclature and measuring the accountability of that with our senior executives. That, that's wonderful. And I want to point out for those listening, we also we did a uh, podcast a few weeks ago with a, a gentleman named Kemi Joseph, and he dove really deep on culture. And he's somebody who's a DEI strategist that works within the industry. And he his, his sweet spot is working with leaders. And he also talks about how leaders envision culture and how you've got to be thoughtful in bringing in DEI strategy, but that ultimately that helps the leaders, not just the rank and file. I, there was another finding from our survey, and that is that the consumers care about the diversity of the firms with whom they work. And more than half of the consumers that we surveyed said that when they seek a new advisor, they ask about the firm's commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And they expect to have a diverse advisory team with whom they can work. So I, I know you've worked for years on the institutional side and, and you've probably seen this for, for a long period of time. Do you expect that we'll continue to see this demand from all types of consumers, retail and institutional, grow over the coming years? I certainly do, Laura. And it's it's already happening if we think about it. If we look at the wealth transfer in this country, that's generational diversity. The way that 
um, the next generation, their expectations of their wealth advisors, investment strategies, ESG lens, those environmental, social and governance lens to investment strategies. We're already seeing that kind of diversity of thought, of expectation, of connection to what we see in the world, whether it's climate change. There is an expectation that as we work with clients, we bring that level of intellectual diversity, diversity of thought to how we are managing assets for clients, as well as how we bring individuals to support our clients. Now, first and foremost, you know, I've been asked oftentimes as a woman of color, what do you want in your wealth advisor? Would you expect to see a woman of color? Well, first and foremost, I want the best wealth advisor that I can find. My expectation of anyone managing wealth for me or my family would be that you understand that it is important for me to see a woman, a person of color, or someone on the team. How is it that you can expect and understand my lived experience if you are not willing and open and even smart enough to know that you should be able to have someone who can address my needs and concerns from all the diverse aspects of who I am? And you're right, Laura, we see it on the institutional side, the requests for proposals that we get. They want to understand and look at broadly, what is the diversity of your board of directors? Do you have global diversity, all of those aspects of it. So it won't change. I think uh, I see it intensifying. In fact, I've probably done as many uh, client or prospect pre presentations talking about our DEI strategy as I've ever done uh, in my career. And so it is increasing. It is a distinguishing feature. And it is so important for us to do that. And, and, and while I am talking about that, I would encourage all of our listeners to look at our Northern Trust Corporate Social Responsibility Report for 2020, which will be published uh, next week. And in that, we do describe in detail our diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy and a lot of our strategic initiatives around inclusion, product development, the diversity of those products as well, up to and including our supplier and business uh, diversity as well. Thank you, Connie. So I want to shift gears here a little bit. Um, the future of work is coming to fruition, right? Some of us are going back. Many people are back in the office. Some are negotiating different sorts of working schedules. And I'm wondering what impact do you think some of these choices might have on a firm's and advisory firm's ability to recruit, hire, and retain a more diverse group of employees? I think it's going to have a profound impact. I've been following the research and the, the white papers that have come out and participated and listened in on podcasts and other things. When we talk about the future of work, distinguishing that from return to office, right? Return to office means how do we get people back into our offices safely and you know have all the proper protocols to ensure that they can work in a safe environment that allows them to have technology to serve clients and, and all of those things in the right way. But the future of work says, you know, what is it going to look like? What is required of us? And I think we're looking at a new chapter. And I and I often say that. You know, people keep saying, well, we're turning to the new normal. Well, I hope you'll agree with me that normal wasn't working for everyone. And I heard a CEO refer to it as wanting to return to a new better. And what does a new better look like? A new better looks like for people who have caregiving issues and the ways that they might need to take care of their families, offering greater flexibility. We've seen how many women have left the workforce as a result of the pandemic. And that then 
depletes our access to talent. If more women have left the workforce for a number of reasons, we need to be thinking about how we can be more flexible in order to bring that talent back into the workplace. This new chapter of having a work experience based on confidence, competence, and equity. You know, Gen Z demands this as they think about what they um, are looking for in, in the future of work. The future of work from a competitive perspective, I see it as an opportunity because so often we've required employees to be fixed at a, at a fixed place, that if you work at this building, that is where I expect you to be. But it's opened up recruitment opportunities because I may or may not be able to recruit someone from a different part of the country or dare I say the world, but that individual might not want to relocate. And therefore, I have the flexibility with the benefit of technology and being able to create a work uh, environment, a work-life environment for individuals that allows us then to have a broader pool of talent from which to recruit. And I don't know about you, but I've certainly been following this whole notion of people dropping out of the workforce or changing roles right now. There is tremendous opportunity in the marketplace. And I think that for those organizations who are flexible and nimble enough to figure out how to have people work differently with the same level of intellectual perspicacity required, that there is great talent that we can gain access to. And for those firms who understand that, the opportunities for talent retention, uh, recruitment, and the creativity with that comes with that kind of diversity will greatly enhance the firms in their ultimate services that they deliver to clients. And I think I would just add one more thing. We, we have to remain aware that, that during this past year and a half that clients have gotten used to more flexibility. Mm-hmm. Do you really have to go into the financial advisor's office or can you not do the meeting? Is it easier to skip the 30-minute drive or hour drive to your advisor's office and just do it on Zoom and do it after the end of your workday rather than taking a longer lunch to make that happen? And so I think it's it's as much for the clients as it is for the firms themselves. And if I could add in there, it's also um, good for the environment. It's hard not to miss. And and part of my work, as you know, is corporate social responsibility, which has an environmental aspect to it. It's hard not to miss the reduction in greenhouse gas emissions as a result of the pause that we all had to take to save our lives and the lives of others. I noticed in my own neighborhood, the the butterflies and the, the birds and things that I saw last year during this time of going inside physically as well as mentally. And I think when we look at it from that perspective with climate change, if there are things we could do to mitigate the negative impacts that we can have on the climate, Laura, I think that's an, that's an additional benefit. The flexibility our clients expect are absolutely spot on and how we then can ensure that they get the data and information they need to make the important decisions that they need to make for their lives. I love that connection to environment. Thank you. So we've talked about uh, a lot of important topics today. In my mind, one of the things that really questions that I have is who paid for the coffee, Connie or Laura? (laughs) (laughs) But seriously, as our time does come to a close today, we always like to ask our guests to leave our listeners with some actionable takeaways. So we're going to ask for two. One that is focused on actions that those outside of management can take to help build a culture of inclusion. And then another one that is a takeaway for leaders that know they need to take action, but are having trouble finding the time or even the help they need to create a more diverse and inclusive organization. So for the first one, David, I'd say, you know, focusing on actions that those outside of management can take help 
build a culture of inclusion. I say number one is, as I said before, is to educate yourselves. It is okay to admit that what we don't know. And how do we educate ourselves? That's through critical self-inquiry, you know, intellectual curiosity and empathy. So understand what it means, this culture of inclusion. That means everybody. Keep in mind how I define diversity as that already exists. And what do we do in terms of inclusion? So think about your organization. What are the levers that you can pull or move to impact specific outcomes that then will benefit the bottom line? We know that when diversity, equity, and inclusion is appropriately deployed, it does have a positive impact on the bottom line. As it relates to leaders, once again, as you're embarking on this journey and thinking about what you can do, remember that we're talking about people. Our frameworks and data and numbers are crucial to our success. And we do approach problems methodically. But when we're thinking about people, we usually can't get them down to a framework. So it really requires us as leaders to examine the ways that we want to articulate the vision for DEI in the firms and keeping those FACs in mind. No fixing, advising, correcting, or saving. Now, not advising in terms of being a wealth advisor, but advising in terms of how we want to learn about other people. Develop a diverse network and keep in mind that it is an ongoing process of learning and education. Think about it quantitatively and then how that would manifest as a qualitative strategy as well for your organizations. Oh, I love that wonder part of it. And Connie, you are a true wonder and always a real delight to have on the podcast. So thank you. And we look forward to talking with you again very soon. Thank you so much for having me. Stay well. If you are an advisor or would like to know more about the corporate and social responsibility here at Northern Trust, visit www.northerntrust.com forward slash about us forward slash corporate social responsibility. So that's a lot. So that's www.northerntrust.com. Then you have a forward slash about dash us and then another forward slash corporate dash social dash responsibility. And if that is just too many dashes, (laughs) please look for the link in our show notes. (laughs) If you like this podcast, you may also like the other Flex Shares podcast called Funds in Focus. Check it out today and you will find it wherever you get your podcasts. For myself and Laura Gregg, we want to thank you, our listeners, for joining us on today's episode of The Flexible Advisor. Thank you for listening to The Flexible Advisor podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds or Northern Trust. All investments involve risk, including possible loss of principal. Before investing, carefully consider the FlexShares investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus and a summary prospectus, copies of which may be obtained by visiting www.flexshares.com. Read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Foresight Fund Services, LLC Distributor. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Although we attempt to keep the information complete and current, we do not warrant that the content herein is accurate, complete, or current. We make no commitment to update the content herein. It is your responsibility to verify any information before relying on it. The content of this podcast may include technical inaccuracies. 
We may make changes in the products and or services described herein at any time. We provide you this information with the understanding that we are not rendering accounting, legal, or tax advice. Please consult your legal or tax advisor concerning such matters.